Good morning, church. I'm glad to be back and privileged to preach to you all once again. However, it's going to be a while until I can preach again, simply because my family is about to embark on an insanely busy season in our lives. Some of you already know that we are building a new house, and frankly, in a neighborhood we never really saw ourselves living in, but is actually much, much closer to the church. There are many reasons why we decided to move, but one big one is that instead of being 20 to 30 minutes away from all of you, we want to be much closer, much more available, and much more able to do life with all of you. Additionally, Victoria and I do have a bit of an announcement to make. We are expecting baby number two in May. Thank you. Which means things are just going to get that much crazier. So last time we were terrified because we didn't know what to expect, but this time I'm terrified because I know exactly what to expect. (laughs) So please be in prayer for all of us. Uh, While it may be a bit before we can get back to James, if needed, I would be happy to step in. But until then, whenever the Lord will have have me speak again, let's continue digging into James 1. To review a little, we went through James 1, 1 through 8 last time. Now, you may remember that I gave a few reasons for why I chose James. And to jog your memory a little bit, I talked about how we hear a lot from Paul in the New Testament, but we don't necessarily hear a lot from James. See, Paul will give us chapters upon chapters of mind-blowing theology, but James, he is much more direct and much more in your face. James does not pull any punches. He says, you know this stuff, so now go out and do it. James is particularly good at encouraging those in the faith to have an active faith, but he is also good at bringing to light those who may think they are alive, but are actually spiritually dead. No movement in your faith means that you have no faith at all. You are spiritually dead. So James' desire here is also my desire. My desire and prayer for all of you is that your faith in Christ would urge you to move, urge you to love him, urge you to serve others. And likewise, my desire is that if you are spiritually dead, that the marvelous light of the gospel will stir and awaken your soul. So last time in James 1, 1 through 8, we saw how James encourages the faithful to be active in their faith and for the dead in their faith to come alive, but all under the focal point of suffering. So we saw how God calls the faithful to rejoice in all of their trials and how that joy within the trial isn't irrational, but is definitely radical. It's radical to how the world approaches their trials. God has a purpose. We also saw how God has a purpose behind the trial, and that is to produce steadfastness, so that when your soul is buffeted and you're tempted to forsake your faith, you will stand strong. The testing of your faith is meant to give you more of what your heart most desires. It's meant to give you more of Jesus. We saw that God also has a condition, and that condition is that we would put our faith to work in the midst of our trials, that our cry would be that we believe, now help our unbelief. Lastly, we saw how God has a promise for us, that if we stand fast amidst our trial, we will receive the crown of life. But if we do not stand fast, and Christ on, as the atonement for our sins, or if we don't simply stand at all, it will be God's wrath upon our heads. So now, now that we've reviewed verses 1 through 8, let's see how this works in verses 12 through 18. You can find that on page 1011 in your pew Bibles. Let's read the word of the Lord together. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, for every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Please pray with me. Father, you are a good and righteous and holy God. But Lord, we are a people who are prone to wonder. We are prone to leave the God who we love. Father, we know that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So we ask that you would illuminate our minds and our souls to this text, that we may walk in accordance to your will and to your word. It's in the fully capable name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Some of you may be wondering why we start off reviewing the section on trials and suffering in James 1. And there's a couple reasons for that. First, just generally speaking, it's always good to know the context of the verses you are studying. Part of knowing that context is looking at the text before the text you are looking at. Secondly, even more so, in this particular text, it may seem like James has an abrupt topic change. See, you can see in verse 12 where he is speaking about trials and then immediately jumps into temptation in verse 13. See, I would argue it's actually not as abrupt as it seems. See, I think trials and suffering are intimately connected to temptation. I think we can see this in three particular ways. First, when trials come, we are tempted to sin. This can happen from trials that are in their core stemming from stress and anxiety. See, when we get stressed out, whether it be from work or school or driving or overscheduling, or maybe you're anxious over your finances, or maybe there's just particular people in your life that bring you a lot of stress, all of it ultimately being a fear, is ultimately being a fear of what tomorrow may bring. And then from that, we are tempted to sin. We're tempted to sin by maybe telling ourselves that you just need to have, you know, one more beer to take the edge off, but that one beer then turns into many beers. Or maybe you run to drugs or entertainment or whatever particularly entices you just to get away from it all. Or maybe it's much more covert. Maybe the stress and anxiety induces a state of something like road rage, where you lash out to the people around you over every little thing. Clearly, when trials come, we are tempted to sin. Secondly, When we sin, more suffering comes. See, more often than not, the reason why sin is sin is because it brings pain to either the person themselves or the people around them. Like if someone commits murder, they have caused a world of hurt and pain to others and could end in capital punishment for themselves. Or like if you come under the influence of drinking or drugs and decide to go driving, you could end up physically harming or killing someone. Or like if you engage in extramarital activity, you run the risk of not only destroying your relationship with your spouse, but of tearing your entire family apart. See, I want to be clear. Just because a trial of suffering has come your way, it does not necessarily mean that the reason for that trial is your sin. That frankly can only be said if there is a clear connection. For instance, if you contract AIDS or an STD after having sex outside of marriage, that would then be a clear connection. Even when it comes to suffering or death or natural causes, we have to remember that God made everything good, but when Adam and Eve sinned, they brought in suffering and death. The ongoing sin of humanity has contributed to natural suffering and natural death. As Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. Lastly, our text for today is just like James 1, 1 through 8. Just how James said that the purpose of trials and suffering are to reveal weak faith or no faith at all, and is then designed to make your faith strong, The trials or the testing that come from temptation have the very same purpose. So when you're tempted to sin, are you going to stand in faith and renounce that sin and renounce that temptation? Or are you going to give in and cause your faith to crumble under the weight of the temptation? 
So for today, my two big points are that in our text we see a problem and we see a solution. So if you're taking notes, your two big headers would be a problem and then a solution, and then underneath that we're going to have a few points under those headings. So to arrive at the problem, allow me all to ask you a question. What is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? See, we live in a world where a bomb could drop and wipe out an entire city. We live in a world where children are kidnapped and they are drugged up so they won't cry and then they're sold into sex slavery. We live in a place where people are raped and assaulted, where people are murdered, where people are consumed with greed. We live in a world where even the people who are supposed to trust, who we are supposed to trust, betray us. We live in such a way where the people we hurt are the ones that we love the most. See, the problem with the world is us. We are the problem. But what about us particularly? The problem is that we are tempted, that we sin, and that there is evil. Quickly allow me to distinguish between temptation, sin, and evil. I think it's important. Temptation, its most basic form, is our desire to do something that we know to be sinful. Sin, however, is when the temptation or that desire is then acted upon. This is the human experience for every human who has ever lived, except for Jesus. But I think that's an important distinction to make. Because many times we trip up where we are tempted, and we have this massive guilt just for being tempted. And while we need to be wary of where we are being tempted from, we cannot put temptation on the same level of sin. Now, evil is what springs forth from our sin. Then when we do the sinful act, evil is done to ourselves and then also to others. I think a good analogy here is the idea of throwing a rock into a quiet still lake. Do you guys ever get tempted to, to throw a rock into a quiet still lake and just see the ripples come out? See, if it was me, I'd be trying to find just the biggest rock possible to make the biggest splash possible. But see, it sends ripples throughout the entire lake once you throw the rock. See, your temptation is the desire to throw the rock. Your sin is when that rock hits the water, and the evil is the sin that has caused a ripple effect that sends shockwaves to the water around it. Overall, the problem in this text is the problem of temptation, sin, and evil. So how does James begin addressing that problem? He begins by giving us a command. So check out verse 13. Let no one say that when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. James is exhorting us not to ever blame God. James is telling us this because he knows that it is in our sinful human nature to blame everyone except for ourselves for our own sin. So commonly, we first put the blame on God. When we are tempted or when we fall into sin, we put the blame on God. So take a look at Genesis 3, 12 through 13. This is right after Eve took of the fruit. So the man said to God, The woman whom you gave me gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The servant seed me, and I ate. So right after, when God found out that they sinned against him, who did Adam first blame? See, I know many of you men and husbands want to say, See, it's the woman's fault. The woman did it. But I don't think that's actually what Adam is getting at here. I think what he's saying is that it's the woman that you gave me. He's blaming God for creating what he has created. It's the same thing as when a child blames their parents for what they've done. It's the same thing as saying, well, God, you made me a man, and you made me a man that lusts after women, so it's your fault. You're the one who made me this way. So you know this lie that says we should celebrate the way we are because that's just the way that God has made us has been told over and over and over again in our culture to justify a whole multitude of sins. I know this song is pretty old now, but maybe some of you may remember Lady Gaga. She has a song called Born This Way that says this, and, and don't worry, I'm not going to sing it, but, but these are the lyrics. She says, My mama told me when I was young that we were all born superstars. 
There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said, because he made you perfect, babe. So hold your, your head up, girl, and you'll go far. I'm beautiful in my own way, because God made no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and your set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. See, that is what is being sung to loudly proclaim that if God made you gay or bi or transgender or whatever it is, whatever you desire, it is perfectly okay to be exactly who you are. May I suggest to Lady Gaga that it isn't God who made the mistake. He made everything perfectly good, but we are the ones that has ruined what he has created. Let's take a quick look at Eve again in Genesis 3, because I think this here is important too. Eve also doesn't blame herself, but who does she blame? She says, the serpent. The serpent made me do it. The serpent that who created? Right, God created the serpent. But I think for us, too, I think we far too frequently blame Satan for our sin. Satan is known as the great tempter, so we can, to a degree, blame him for our temptation, but not our sin. Our sin is entirely upon us. So if you're tracking with me here, I hope you guys can see that we cannot blame God, Satan, or anyone else for our sin. The problem in the world here is us. So now the best way I found in my preparation to understand this particular text is to examine how James gives us three different natures or three reasons why things are just simply the way they are. These reasons come from the nature of evil, the nature of man, and the nature of sin. Those are your three points. The nature of evil, the nature of man, and the nature of sin. To see the nature of evil, look at the second clause of verse 13. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So this verse tells us two things. It tells us something about evil and also something about God. First, first we learn that evil cannot tempt God. We see this over and over again in Scripture. Leviticus says that the Lord is holy. Isaiah says that the Lord is holy, holy, holy. Peter says that God is holy. Evil cannot pierce the holiness of God. Evil cannot mix with who God is. You don't want a God that isn't holy. How terrifying would it be if God was like the Greek or Roman gods who not only sinned regularly but went out and tempted other gods and other people to sin? No, the holiness of God is a comfort. It is a comfort to those who are saved because we can trust that evil will not prevail. But we also see something about God in this text. We see that God does not tempt anyone. See, the very nature of evil and the holiness of God makes it impossible for him to tempt anyone. It's impossible for God to ever be tempted successfully or to ever tempt someone else. See, if God were to tempt someone, it would mean that he would be taking some sort of delight in seeing that person do evil. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, what about the Lord's Prayer? You know the Lord's Prayer? You know that part where it says that we ask God to not lead us into temptation? So what about that? We'll see that same Greek word, parasmos, is also translated as a trial or testing. So the crux of what the Lord, Lord's Prayer is getting at, what we are actually praying for when we pray that prayer, is that we will not be led into temptation or trial. That is too hard for us to handle. So if you contrast that, and if you remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13, what we are praying for God to do in the Lord's Prayer is a, to fulfill a promise that he has made to us in that verse, that we will not be tempted to more than we can bear or able to endure, but that God will always provide a way to escape. So not only can evil not tempt God, not only is God's holiness impervious to evil, God himself cannot tempt us. He allows us to be tempted through other agents, but he does not allow those agents to tempt more than we can handle. But even more so, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he provides for us a way to escape. Next, we see the nature of man in verse 14. 
Each person or every person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his desire. From this verse then, who is to blame for our temptation and our sin? See, it isn't God, it isn't Satan, it isn't the world, it is us. The blame is laid fully upon us. It's our choice to be tempted and to sin. However, this verse doesn't end with merely who. It begins to tell us how we are tempted. And it does so by saying that temptation happens when we are lured by our desires. So those of you who fish uh, might have perked up when you saw the word lure here. And you are absolutely right to do so. So what this word is referring to could easily be seen as a lure that would be used on a fish. So when you go fish, uh, you, won't, you won't catch anything if you just use a hook. And see, so you certainly won't catch anything if you hold a big neon sign saying, come here and let me kill you. The fish is not going to run towards that. So you need to have a lure that is attached to the hook. So what does this lure do? It conceals the hook. It makes it look enticing to the fish. It tells the fish this is what it needs. It offers sustenance. It promises something tasty. It promises a greater pleasure, a greater reward. And before the fish knows what is happening, it is lured away. Before it knows it, the hook is in. It cannot escape. And if that fish is lucky, it gets to be thrown back. But it could very well end in that fish being gutted. Beloved, we are the fish. Our very nature is that of the fish. We are the exact same when it comes to our own temptation and sin. See, I think this lure analogy can offer another insight into our nature. See, now I haven't fished very much, in law, much, very much in my life, at least. But I know Phil Myers could tell you exactly what lure you need with exactly what method of fishing is best to catch whatever particular species of fish you're trying to catch. So then again, I think we are the exact same way. Who baits our hook? Satan can bait our hook. The world can bait our hook. People can bait our hook. Demons can bait the hook. But what pulls us into the trap, what pulls us into the lure is our own lust. See, the fault lies with us and our nature, but it's the people that make things look enticing. It's Satan who has literally millenniums of experience in what makes sin look so good. He knows exactly what worm, what worm to dangle in front of our faces. Now, see, a regular worm would repulse some of you. Um, in the same way, a lot of sin repulses us too. But we all have sin that by our very nature that looks good and enticing like candy, so to speak. But today in our culture, with the world and the people around us, is it really just a dangle? Is it really just a dangle right in front of our face? Aren't these things just literally being thrown at us from every possible angle? That wherever you look, you see immodesty everywhere, people blaspheming God, people engaged in drunkenness and sex and anger and hate and murder? We are bombarded with these lures everywhere we turn. Who wants to be bombarded? Elon wants to be bombarded. You know, uh, with the way the UofL quarterbacks are playing, I'll be starting in no time. So I hope you all see how we are being tempted by different things is a design to get us to sin. See, you can put a beer in front of me or any alcoholic beverage, and there is literally zero temptation for me to get drunk. Likewise, you can flaunt a scattily clad gay man in front of me, and I would be repulsed. But what you can put in front of me, which, by the way, is no lesser of a sin than homosexuality that will actually have an effect, is what I think is illustrated so clearly in Proverbs 7. This idea of the lure we see so clearly is in Proverbs 7. It says, I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along the house in her direction, walking along in the direction of her house. At twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in, 
Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She took hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen face, she said, I came out to meet you, I looked for you, and I have found you. I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. Beloved, this is what they call a hook, line, and sinker. See, he was lured, he was hooked, He was dragged off to his death. Beloved, don't you see? We are no better. The very nature of who we are stands against a holy and righteous God who must judge us for the sinful choices we have made. Our own temptation, which leads us to our sin without any intervention, will lead us to an eternal death. So clearly, since the nature of man is is being tempted, the nature of man is also to sin. So we see the nature of sin in James in verse 15. It says... Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So listen carefully. Many of us think that sin is a singular act, but to a degree that is true. But what James is saying here about sin is that it's more of a result from a particular process. And I think John MacArthur summarizes that process very well by dividing up into four Ds. So now this is where we can get very practical. The reason why God allows trials of temptation to happen is that our affections will then be turned or tuned towards him instead. So with each D, I'm going to give you a practical exit, an off-ramp, so to speak, to drive away from the result of your sinful actions and instead drive towards Christ. Let's begin with the first D. The first D is desire. We saw this play out in verse 13, that the person is enticed by their desire. So what's desire? See, desire is very closely related to emotion. It begins with a feeling, and a feeling that you won't be satisfied, uh, that something has been dangled in front of your face. Maybe it's just that new Harley, or a new toy, or a bigger house, or maybe it's public recognition, or maybe it's just simply winning an argument. Whoever it may be, whatever it may be, sin starts with a desire. So where is the off-ramp here? Where can we avoid this? The good news is that we can cut off the desire here. If we can cut off the desire here, we are cutting off the sin at its root. We do this by first realizing that we are being tempted, that the desire for something is there. See, it's a very emotional thing. And I think music can provide a very good way to stir up our emotions toward a more godly direction. So take this hymn, for instance. Behold, the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders... Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this, this I know with all of my heart, that his wounds have paid my ransom. Beloved, are you going to control your emotional desires? Will they be captivated by your love for Christ? Or are, they going, or are you going to direct your hearts? the cross. The second D is deception. 
See, what has begun as a desire in your heart has now moved into your mind. It starts in your heart, but then it moves into your mind. So now you start making justifications. You may tell yourself, well, God made me this way, or I'm old enough to watch that, or I'm still in control even if I'm a little intoxicated, or I deserve to have this, or simply they just deserve what I am going to do to them. Or knowing what they've done to me, my anger and my hatred towards them is completely and entirely justified. Or lastly, maybe it's something as simple as, you know, wanting just to be funny. Telling a crude joke, laughing and making fun of the very things that grieve the Lord. Saying it's okay because it's funny. Or convincing yourself that it's okay and not even realizing that your conscience has been seared to it. Ultimately, it's saying that if this looks good and that satisfies me. So this is where we see... The hook being baited, it aims to deceive us, it aims to lure us to our own destruction. So how can we exit the road to deception? See, if a deception is ultimately a lie, then we need to know the truth of his word. We need to be rooted in the word of God. So that way, when our emotions get to the point of deceiving us, we know that the truth will reveal the lie. We need to believe the truth and shut down the lie. So for example, we can look to Eve and Adam in the garden. Eve saw the fruit, and it looked pleasing to eat. And then she believed the lie from the serpent, that they would not die. Adam believed the same lie. They needed to remember that God's words are true, that if they eat of it, that they would die. And beloved, we need to do the same. We need to believe that God's word is true when he says that it is true. We need to believe that when he says sin is sin, that is actually really sin, lest we die. The third D is design. See, now that your heart has informed your mind and your mind has justified what your heart wants, now you begin to design how it can be accomplished and possibly maybe even design how it can be hidden. Maybe it's something where you've worked up lust in your heart, you've convinced your mind that you will fulfill that lust, and now you're planning out exactly how you are going to be able to do it. Maybe you need to be alone to do it, and you're planning out when you can be alone to do what you want to do, and that to hide it, you'll have to triple-check your internet history, and make sure you've actually deleted that internet history. Or maybe you need to make a bank account separate from your spouse so she can't see what you're doing. Or maybe it's that you've decided that you want something, and that you're willing to do whatever you need to do to get it, even to the point of lying to that person to do what you want them to do, or lying to hide what you have done. See, when we have driven down the road this far, to the point of designing how to fulfill our own sinful desire and hide it from others, how do we then drive away? Well, we need to realize here that there is no hiding from the holiness of God. Everything will be brought to light. We can try to run, we can try to hide, but we cannot hide from God. What we need is a healthy fear of the Lord. The last D is disobedience. This is the result of the process. See, desire is conceived in your heart. The womb of your soul is impregnated with desire, by desire. And that desire is then justified in your mind. And then sin, the actual disobedience, is then birthed. And that that child of sin is a killer. It brings about death. It destroys families. It hurts others. It trashes relationships. It brings death at times, even a literal physical death. But that death, but the death that actually matters The death that it causes, that matters the most, is spiritual death. So when sin has been conceived and has been carried full term to birth, the disobedience against a perfectly good and holy God will bring down his judgment. If you've driven yourself to this point where you have fallen to sin, you are not without hope. And we see that hope. We see that exit ramp within our solution. So our solution to the problem of evil, of temptation and sin, 
is the goodness of God and his church. Let's begin by looking at the church. See, the church by God's design is meant to be the people who come alongside each other in their sin. They come along each other, alongside each other and they hold each other accountable. They pray for one another and encourage each other to be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. See, this may mean that we may, need, we may need to be a messier church. But honestly, I am perfectly fine with a messier church if it means being a holy church. James later on in chapter 5 says that we should confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that we may be healed. So to be honest here, I think that we as the broad American church fails to do this far too often. Are we intentionally cultivating these types of relationships within the church body? Beloved, we have to be a church that cultivates a community of restoration. One way that I've seen this done at Calvary is actually through our gospel life groups. The two years we've been together, we've seen sin confessed, we've seen people prayed over, and everyone, everyone in that group being pointed to Christ as a sacrifice made for our sins. Another more specific example is a story at uh, our old church, Emmanuel. Um, And it's a story from Adam and Kelly. Uh, They are two friends of Victoria's and mine, and they were in our old small group as well. And like I said, the story is well known uh, amongst the church there. So see, when Adam and Kelly got married, they were original attenders of Southeast where they weren't really being encouraged and they weren't really being discipled. See, soon after then, they came to Emmanuel and they joined a small group and sin ended up coming out of their marriage. Major sin ended up coming out in their marriage. See, Adam, Adam was addicted to pornography. And when Kelly found out, she burned. She burned with an uncontrollable anger and hatred and malice. It seemed like their relationship, their marriage, could not be restored. But their small group, it came around them. They encouraged them to repent. They're saying, no, divorce is not the way here. And they encouraged them to repent. They prayed over them, all while pointing them to Jesus, who bore the wrath of their sins. See, now their marriage today is restored, and they have two adorable little boys, which, by the way, whenever Kelly wakes wakes up to to feed them at 3 a.m., Adam gets up with her, simply for no other reason but to rub her feet. See, beloved, that's a picture of the restoration that can happen when the body of Christ brings the gospel to those who have fallen into sin. So how then, brothers and sisters, can we cultivate this attitude of restoration in our own lives? How can we cultivate this attitude? First thing, would it be not not think that we are better or more holy than the people next to us? See, I know the stigma that whoever stands in a pulpit is holy, but I can promise you my wife will definitely tell you otherwise, and I will wholeheartedly agree with her. Secondly, I think we should preach the gospel to ourselves. Have we repented of sin in our own lives? Have we believed that Christ has come and died for our sin? Lastly, do we have relationships where we are able to bring our sin to people and that they are then able to bring their sin to us. And when that happens, when someone comes to you in a spirit of confession, no matter what the sin is, our words should not be words of condemnation, but words of grace and peace. To be clear in all of this, this does not mean you should feel like you have to shout your sin from the mountaintops. See, I think scripture gives a clear mandate that stating or starting out with a sin um, should not be, should be made known to as few of people as possible. The mandate is that the sin should not be widely known, but confined to a few number of people as possible. But here's the thing, though. It is, we are called to make it known enough, enough so that people are able to encourage you and hold you accountable. So limitedly known, not broadly, but for the purpose of accountability. So all of this, the church, this community that we are aiming to build, is absolutely nothing without the goodness of God. Without God working his goodness, we cannot have a solution to evil. So take a look at verses 17 and 18. 
Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So what this verse is telling us is that every good thing, everything good, comes from God. Satan, the world, your flesh, they will all try to lie to you. They all try to tell you that God is holding back. He's holding back something good for you, good from you. But that you need to attain and you need to go out and attain that pleasure, that satisfaction for yourself. See, but God says otherwise. He says that every good thing, every pleasure, everything that is actually good and not evil, he will give to you. So now listen to this. The greatest good that God has ever given us is himself. The greatest joy and satisfaction that we can ever find is found in him. He is the father of lights. There is no darkness in him. He does not change. How crazy would it be to chase after the things of the flesh when we have Jesus, who humbled himself and took on human flesh. He went and lived a life with zero sin and then was nailed to the cross to have the very wrath of God poured out on him all on our behalf. But yet we chase after things that turn to ash in our mouth and makes our stomachs go sour. Beloved, the solution to our sin and evil is him. See, Jesus is so much better. He is so much better. There is nothing, nothing, nothing at all that is worth keeping if it is keeping us from Jesus. I started off this sermon by quoting Lady Gaga. Now I'd like to quote Pastor Colin Smith, who changed the lyrics around a bit to match his own story. This is what he says. My mama told me when I was young that we were all born sinners. There is everything wrong with loving who you are, she said, because you are far from perfect, babe. So bow your head down and you'll go far. Listen to me when I say, become beautiful in God's way, because God makes no mistake. You're on the wrong track, baby. You were born this way. Draw near to God in regret. Seek faith in Christ and then you'll be set. You're on the wrong track, baby. You were born this way. Beloved, what do you believe today? What do you believe? Do you believe the word of God? Or do you believe the word of Gaga? You have to make a choice. You cannot have both. If there is nothing broken in you, there is nothing for Jesus to come and redeem. As long as you believe in Gaga, you will never embrace Christ and you will die in your sin. But if you believe God today, even for the first time, that you are a sinner by nature, there is a Redeemer who has come for you, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, he is ready to receive you and walk with you and change you. There is hope for every person in him. In him, sin's curse has lost its grip. He is our solution to our problem. Beloved, I think we need to own up to this. We need to own up to the fact that we have been tempted, that we have sinned, that it's no one's fault besides our own. Maybe you've come to realize today, possibly for the first time, or maybe you've realized now in a fresh new way that we are all sinners. Regardless of where you are at, don't wait to repent of your sins. Don't wait to believe in what Jesus has done. Do not wait until it is too late. The age of mercy is now. The age of grace is now. So please come to him. Come to him.